Um, Paul read to us, we're back in uh, 2 Peter, and we're in, um, we're in this part of the letter where Peter takes a turn. Okay, so far, if you've been uh, tracking with us, he has been calling us to live lives of virtue. Okay, not so that we earn God's favor, but because we already have his favor in the Lord Jesus. And because as we live those lives, one of the reasons we should live those lives is God will see us through to the end and he will welcome us into his eternal kingdom. Okay, except, okay, Peter knows that there are people in the churches that he is writing to who are telling the other people that he's writing to, nah, you don't want to listen to that. Okay, Peter is just telling you this stuff. Peter's just telling you this stuff about how you should live and, you know, the end of time. He's just telling you this stuff to manipulate you, to get you to behave the way he wants you to. And in particular, as we're going to see in the uh, weeks to come, we know from what Peter says that these people are undermining the apostles' teaching, not least on Jesus' second coming and the final judgment. Okay, they're saying things like, Chapter 3, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, come on. Peter and the other apostles, they are telling you that Jesus is coming back. But we don't see any sign of that. When's that happening? They are just telling you that to control you. But you can live free of that kind of fear. You can live free of those kind of fairy tales. And needless to say, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, okay, the kind of freedom they are talking about is to do with sex and money and authority. Okay, nothing changes, does it? Okay, not just the sex and the money part, but the authority part, the authority that the apostles' teaching should have in their life and our lives. Because the apostles' teaching is what we now have in our New Testament. And there are plenty of people who will tell you, you shouldn't let that be the authority in your life. I mean, the Bible, the church, that's just about controlling you. That's just about them trying to get you to live the way they want you to be. You should be your own authority. Don't let anyone else take that place. And Peter is saying, no, the Bible should be the authority in your life. And for good reasons. Okay, we're going to look at we're going to look at three, three and a half, four things. Okay, we're going to look at we're going to look at what the Bible isn't, and we're going to look at what the Bible is. Part one. Then we're going to look at what the Bible is. Part two, and then we're going to see what you should do about it. Okay, so firstly, what the Bible isn't. Look at verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, uh, Roman Greek religion was all about myths, stories about what the gods got up to. Okay, but they weren't just stories for entertainment. Okay, they were stories with a purpose. You know, Aristotle said... The mythical form, these stories about the gods, is chosen so that the masses, people like us, can learn religious and ethical instruction. Okay, so the philosophers, they 
knew that the stories about the gods weren't literally true, but they were useful. Okay, they served a useful purpose. They taught, you know, as they saw it, they taught virtue, courage, morality. Or think about um, Plato's noble lie, this idea of the noble lie, and how a society's elite can legitimately, in Plato's view, can legitimately propagate a lie, a myth that they know to be false, in order to maintain social harmony. And that is what the false teachers in Peter's day are accusing Peter and the other apostles of doing. That they know, Peter, the apostles, they know that, that, you know, the central claims of Christianity, they're not literally true, but they are useful. Okay, they're, they're useful for the leaders. They're also useful in the eyes of the apostles. So the idea goes for controlling you, for, for, for society, for making people live a certain way. And if you think about it, okay, that is what Marx, Karl Marx and Nietzsche and their descendants today accuse Christianity of being. Okay, myths used for social control. The, the myth, this thing that makes you the people or you the individual compliant or weak. And so we should be done with it. Now, of course, you don't have to be a Marxist or a wannabe Nietzschean ubermensch to think like that. Okay, the, to think that, okay, the central claims of Christianity, like, you know, like Jesus, you know, the awkward ones, like Jesus being raised from the dead, yeah, they're not literally true, but they are useful. Okay, they can teach us how to live moral lives. Okay, but what happens if you think like that? What happens if you adopt that as your philosophy, as, as, as they were? Well, what happens is you begin to pick and choose the bits that you want to follow and the bits that you don't. And that bit about loving your neighbor, that speaks to me. But that bit about not sleeping with your neighbor, okay, that is so passe. And the Bible becomes, if you adopt that, the Bible becomes, sure, it's an influence in your life, but it's not your authority. And Peter is saying, yes, but Christianity is not cleverly devised myths. It's unlike any other religion. The gospel is not moral instruction. It is not, this is what you should do. It is, this is what Christ has done for you in history and what he will do in history. Okay, look again at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's almost certainly talking about the apostles teaching that one day Christ will return and return in glory, the power of his coming. Because the word that Peter uses for coming is the word parousia, which means presence, somebody being present, or someone's appearance. It was the word that was used for the arrival of a king to a city on a state visit and how the crowds from the city would go out to welcome the king and then you know, escort him back into the city. And in the New Testament, that word parousia becomes the word for Jesus' second coming and his return as king. And Peter is saying, when we teach you that, we are not making it up. 
This is not some kind of noble lie to get you to live a virtuous life, like, you know, look busy, Jesus is coming. Instead, Peter tells them what his and the other apostles' teaching is, and therefore, second point, what the Bible is. Part one. Okay, verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter has got a specific event in mind. It's the time when, when Peter and James and John went up with Jesus up a mountain and saw Jesus transfigured before them, as Matthew tells us, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And Peter is telling them and us we're not making that up. We saw that. And what he saw was like a sneak peek. It was like a trailer to a movie. It was like a, you know, I don't watch superhero movies, but it was like, you know, superhero pulling back his shirt, revealing the superhero logo underneath. And you just know that something is about to happen. Because what Peter saw was something of who Jesus really is. And in the words of the Christmas carol, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And just momentarily, for however long it lasted, the curtain was pulled back, and Peter and James and John saw Jesus' majesty. The majesty of the word become flesh, that in the words of the creed, he is very God who was made man. And Peter is saying, you think our teaching is just a useful, a useful myth? Believe me, we have seen his glory. We have had a foretaste of his future coming. And it is no myth. Now, if I were to tell you, I've entered an ultra marathon and I am going to win it. Okay, you would, if you know me, okay, you would rightly laugh. Okay? But if, at, if our friend David Niblack, director of the Bible School in Geneva, if he said, if you know him, if he said, I've entered the same race and I have got every intention of winning, no one would laugh. Okay, why? Because David's got form. He's got a track record. And Peter is saying, you think we've made this up? You question the idea of Jesus returning in glory? No, we have seen his form. We were eyewitnesses to his glory. And when he comes, he is going to come as king. Because they weren't just eyewitnesses. They were ear witnesses if that isn't mangling the English language. Okay. Verses 17 to 18. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, have you ever had the experience of hearing a new piece of music, and as you're listening to it, there's, some, there's something about it. Okay? There's something about 
the chords, there's something about the progression, there's something about the melody that makes you think, I've heard that before, that reminds me of another piece of music that I know. Well, at the Transfiguration, if you listen, there are echoes to at least three separate pieces from the Old Testament. Again, the first is a song, Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that psalm was probably written for a coronation. But if you read it, if you look at it, it goes beyond any king we encounter in the Bible or elsewhere. Because this king, the king of Psalm 2, is going to possess every nation to the end of the earth. And every other king is going to worship this king. And this king is going to vanquish all of his enemies and yet be the one in whom people find refuge. And as you read it, you think, what kind of a king is that? But here is Jesus, Peter says, on a holy mountain, echoing the words of Psalm 2, a holy hill. And God the Father takes the words of Psalm 2 and says, this is my son, the heir to every throne. Okay, but then there's a second echo. Okay, and it's from Genesis chapter 22, where God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, which becomes Mount Zion, another holy mountain, on which Jerusalem and the temple are built. But of course, what happens in that episode is that God steps in and he provides a substitute, a ram, in place of Isaac. But if you read it, the story, I think the story leaves us reeling. Because why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son? Until you get to the transfiguration, when Peter hears on another mountain, another holy mountain, as God the Father says of Jesus, this is my son, the son whom I love, the son who will become the substitute and the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. Then there's a third echo from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And the servant that Isaiah describes becomes a suffering servant who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities, and by whose wounds we are healed. And through Isaiah, God says, behold that servant, my servant, the one in whom my soul delights. And then we get to Jesus' transfiguration, and God the Father speaks again and says, Behold my son, my beloved, the one in whom my soul delights. And Peter is saying, we saw it. We heard it. 
the glory of God's anointed king who will come and claim his inheritance, the beloved son, the ultimate substitute and sacrifice, and the suffering, sin-bearing servant. And Peter says we are not making it up. Now maybe you think, okay, sure, I get that the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses, but the Bible as a whole I mean, the Bible is the authority in my life telling me what I should and I shouldn't do. I mean, what about the Old Testament? Have you read it? Do you know what's in there? Okay, third point. What the Bible is, part two. Okay, look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Okay, so it's not just that Jesus' transfiguration is a trailer of what is to come. It is also the confirmation of what has already happened, the words that the prophets have spoken. Okay, great, but which prophets? Okay, what's, what is Peter talking about? Because you know, if you were a Jew living in Jesus' time, you would be forgiven for thinking that when Messiah came, he would come as a king and Israel's enemies would all be conquered and the hills would drip with wine and everything would be put right. Okay, which explains why those who did believe that Jesus was that Messiah but then had to watch him die, crucified as a criminal on the accursed cross, were crushed by the experience. It explains why two of them on the road to Emmaus that first Easter Sunday morning said to the stranger walking beside them, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but now those hopes lie broken. But the stranger, Christ himself, risen from the dead, says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, it is not just a few isolated texts in the prophets that speak of Christ, the whole Old Testament does. And some of what it says was, was fulfilled in Christ's first coming, but other stuff will only be fulfilled at his second coming. But we know God will do it, Peter says, because we have seen a foretaste of it. And yet, Peter is saying the Old Testament doesn't stand on our authority. It stands on its own, verses 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, God spoke, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's not just that the New Testament is eyewitness testimony and not cleverly devised myths. It's that the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole is not human invention at all. That Moses or David or Isaiah or Jeremiah, it's not like they decided, I know, I'm going to write some stuff about God. And then somebody else had the great idea to put it all together and make the Bible. No, Peter says, 
No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Okay, so if in verse 17, the voice of God was born, literally carried to Jesus at his transfiguration, and if in verse 18, the apostles heard that voice as it was born, literally again carried from heaven, then all of the Bible writers, Peter says in verse 21, were also carried, same verb, also born along by God's spirit. Okay, so just as God spoke at and through the transfiguration of who Jesus was and is, so he spoke and still speaks through the Bible. So that same voice speaks to us today. Okay, but maybe you hear that and think, yeah, but really? Are we really, I mean, have you read the Bible again, Martin? I mean, 66, bo 66 books, they're all incredibly different from one another. Are we really supposed to believe that they all have one author, God? Are we really supposed to believe that? Because they are very different. And the answer is yes and no. Okay, when, I was a, um, when I was a doctor, I had one of those dictaphones. I don't know, do they still exist? Do people still use, yeah, yeah, okay, dictaphones still exist. And um, after seeing my patients in clinic, you know, all these little babies and kids, I would sit in my office afterwards and I would dictate my letters to the family doctors. Dear, dear Dr. Smith, it was a pleasure to see little Jimmy in clinic today. I mean, the fact that he pooped everywhere and vomited everywhere, doesn't matter. It was a pleasure to see him. And then I would take that tape and I would hand it, dictate, it, dictate the letters, take that tape, hand it to my secretary, and she would type up the letter, give it back to me. I would sign it, would stick it in the post. And those letters were all boring Dr. Slack. Okay, there was none of the personality of my secretary in them. Okay, and believe me, she was quite a personality. Okay, but that's not what's going on with scripture, Peter says. Okay, scripture is not like God dictating something to the writers who then just write it down. They're not dictating machines. Verse 21, men spoke. With all their different personalities, all their different styles, all their different characteristics, men spoke. But God had created them and fashioned them and chosen them and placed them at a point in history so that when they spoke, Peter says, they spoke from God and said just what he wanted them to say. That like a ship raising its sails and being carried along by the wind, so these men raised the sails of their hearts and were carried along by the Spirit. Okay, so it's not just that the transfiguration tells us that Jesus is fully man and fully God. It's that the Bible is 100% written by men and 100% inspired by God. It is his authoritative, infallible, inerrant word. It's why... Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. 
Which is why Peter says, it should have the place of authority in your life. Because if it's not in the place of authority in your life, something else much less good is going to take that place. Last point then, what you should do about it. Okay, what the Bible isn't, what the Bible is, and what you should do about it. You see, whether you acknowledge it or not, something is the authority in your life. Okay, something gives you a moral code. Something tells you the things you should do and the things that you should never do. You know, last weekend, um, Sue spent um, uh, the weekend uh, helping lead the kids' work at another church's retreat, back-to-back kids' work church retreats, angel points in heaven. <laughs> and um, when, she told the, um, when she told the kids that Jesus has come for all kinds of people, one of the kids said, but not for bad people. To which Sue replied, yes, even for bad people. To which the child replied, but not really bad people. <laughs> to which Sue said, yes, even the Jesus has come even for the really bad ones. To which the child replied, yes, but not for people who put plastic in the oceans. <laughs> okay, so your moral code, wherever, wherever you are getting your moral code from, it will even give you your version of the original sin, the unforgivable sin. And today you are told that authority, okay, that code should come from within you. You should be your own authority, and you should do whatever feels right to you. But in reality, you know, as Jonathan said a um, few weeks back at his baptism, if you make yourself, or if you think that you're the authority of your life, that just makes you a puppet in the hands of puppet masters. Because if you're saying, well, I'm going to be guided by what feels good to me, you're just going to become a puppet of your feelings. And your feelings go up and down. And sometimes you feel like you want one thing. And sometimes you feel like you want another thing. And sometimes you feel like you want them both at the same time, but they're contradictory to each other. Or you're going to become a puppet of our surrounding culture and what it tells you you should be doing. Or you're going to be become a puppet of the good opinion of those key people in your lives who you dare not offend, lest they cancel you. Okay, so if you are looking inside for light, things are going to be pretty dark. Okay, but maybe you're not looking inside. Maybe you genuinely are looking outside to something outside of yourself for your moral moral code. You know, I read uh, this last week about how Rory McIlroy, the um, the captain of the European Ryder Cup golf team turned to the writings of Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics to get himself out of a tight spot during the competition. So maybe you're looking to the Stoics, or maybe you are. Uh, maybe you have a more eclectic approach. Maybe you, you know, take a bit of the Bible, take a bit of Jordan Peterson, take a bit of Oprah Winfrey, and you sort of create your very odd own sort of moral approach to life. Okay, I would say to you, does it have the power to convict and critique you as well as to encourage you? 
Is it a light that shines into the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart? Or is it just an extension and expression of yourself? Does it have the power to humble you to the dust at the same time as it lifts you up to the skies? Does it show you how broken you really are and yet how infinitely loved and valuable you are? Does it tell you, as C.S. Lewis said, that one day you will either be an eternal horror if you carry on growing more like yourself or something so magnificent, so beautiful, Lewis said, that if we were to see it now, we would be tempted to fall down and worship you. That's what Christianity says. Or like the philosophy of these false teachers, does it tell you, nah, you should live however you want to live and don't let anyone stand in the way of that. Okay, look again at verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Okay, we're all walking in the dark, Peter says. The world is dark, culture's dark, our hearts are dark, but God's word, the Bible, is like a lamp shining, a light with the power to steady your feelings, to steady your emotions, because it shows you God is your rock. You can depend on him. It's a light that frees you from being a puppet of the opinion of others because it shows you what God thinks of you, the one opinion that really counts. It's a light on your path telling you, nope, you have taken a wrong turn. This is the way. Walk in it. And you can trust that light because you know its author loved you so much. He died for you. But if it is to have that kind of steadying, directing, encouraging, convicting, humbling, exalting power in your life, Peter says it has got to be your authority. You've got to pay attention to it. Now, how do you do that? Well, as our girls had drummed into them uh, in youth, read the Bible and pray every single day. You know, if you're not reading the Bible regularly, get yourself a Bible reading plan. You know, read big bits, read small bits, read it slowly, read it attentively, read it meditatively, read it with others, join a home group, read it with others, you know, hear what other people are saying, you know, come, keep coming to church, hear it read here. Whatever you do, read it. And as you read it, remember, you have the author of every book sat beside you. So ask him to show you the glory of Jesus in it, the glory that Peter got to see. And do that, Peter says, until the day dawns. Meaning, don't quit. Don't, don't quit, don't throw in the towel, don't succumb to the false teachers. It may be dark now, but daybreak is coming. When, verse 19, the morning star rises in your hearts. And we'll finish with this. You know, when the, um, when the prophet Balaam was asked, and we'll hear about Balaam in the weeks to come. Uh, when the prophet Balaam was asked to curse Israel, he found he couldn't. Instead, he said, 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. What's he seeing? Who's he seeing? Who's he beholding? A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A king's going to come. And in Revelation, Jesus says, I am that star. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Okay, so the transfiguration and God's word tell you Jesus is the king and one day he will return and when he does, he is going to put everything right and you are no fool to believe it. He's got form. So make him and his word the authority, the guiding light in your life. Whatever anyone else tells you to do and whatever anyone else is doing. Let's pray.